In an old estate situated just outside Chichester on the south coast of England sits the Hinton Ampner Manor House. Rebuilt several times over its 1,000 year existence, its current iteration is an innocuous brick building with little in common with the Tudor mansion that stood before and no hints to its creepy past. Once considered by the locals to be haunted, it was the site of an old Gothic-style haunting, a hundred years before they were all the rage of the Victorian readers. Suggested by many to be the influence for Henry James's The Turn of the Screw, The Haunting of Hinton Ampner was a ghost story that took place long before its time. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark History Season 7, Episode 19. I'm Ben, your host as always. It's great to be back. And before we start, I have a tiny little piece of news, which is very exciting little bit of backslapping that I'm going to do before we start. So please forgive me. But Dark Histories has been voted or nominated rather for the Independent Podcast Awards in the categories of True Crime and Horror and Supernatural, which is super exciting. The competition's pretty stiff, but... You know, it's, it's really cool just to be nominated for it in the first place. So it's super fun. Little piece of news. I'm happy. Backslapping stops there. Sorry. Let's get on with this episode, shall we? After a couple of episodes of murders in France, I thought we would skip to something a little bit different, change the pace a little bit. So we've got an old Gothic haunting this time. But it's Gothic haunting before Gothic hauntings were kind of a thing. So this is The Haunting of Hinton Ampner. Eight miles to the east of Winchester, surrounded by nothing but green fields and tree-lined country roads, lies the Hinton Ampner estate. The relatively unassuming entrance remains quite modest, an eight-foot, ornate, yet understated cast-iron gate, ordained with a barely legible family crest, flanked by two brick pillars, sits quietly off the narrow country lane, a few hundred yards from the Hinton Arms, a quintessential country pub, complete with an abundance of hanging baskets pinned onto the yellow walls. A plaque on the right pillar that reads, no heavy vehicles or coaches, is the only outward sign that beyond lay a grand old manor house complete with 13th century church in its gardens. Rebuilt several times over the years, the original estate of Hinton Ampner existed as far back as the Doomsday Book of 1086, with its surrounding woodlands that were valued at 10 swine. The original complex burnt down during the Tudor period and the first modern manor house, a two-storey affair complete with 21 bedrooms and an attic space for the servants, was built on the land during the 1540s, before being leased from the church by Thomas Stukeley at the end of the century, who took on the manor for 21 years. With the outbreak of the English Civil War, the house and surrounding 700 acres of land, including the brew house, malt house, stables, hop garden and bowling green, were all confiscated from the church and with its elevated position overlooking large swathes of open land, it saw itself as the perfect candidate to be repurposed as a headquarters for the parliamentarians. Eventually, following several battles in the surrounding acreage, the estate was sold in 1650 for £2,587.17.5 to Sir John Hippersley, an enterprising politician, privateer and parliamentarian, who had fought for the English army against the French and Spanish as lieutenant of Dover Castle before beginning a career in politics. Hippersley found himself relieved of the estate during the Restoration when ownership passed back into the hands of the church and once more into the possession of the Stukeley family. 
1719, Mary Stukeley married Edward Stowell, the fourth Stowell Baron, whose great-grandfather had been elected as Knight of the Shire of Somerset and fought across the country throughout the Civil War. Mary and Edward occupied the house throughout their marriage, along with Mary's younger sister, Honoria, until Mary died unexpectedly in 1740. Following his wife's death, Edward allegedly began a relationship with Honoria, which naturally stirred up a great deal of gossip and criticism in the nearby village, which only intensified after stories made the rounds that Honoria was pregnant. To add to the scandal, the child was said to have mysteriously disappeared, with the rumours suggesting that it had been unceremoniously done away with. Honoria passed away in 1755, and a year later, Edward put an end to the baronetcy when he died during an apoplectic fit aged 56. Following the death of Lord Stowell, Hinton Ampner passed to his daughter, Mary, though the manor itself remained unoccupied for several years, manned only by a skeleton staff of elderly domestic servants, two of which had served at the manor for over 40 years, who kept the house in running shape in order for it to accommodate visitors during the annual month-long shooting season. Whilst these years were a period of relative calm for the house, whose history had been so full of drama and action, there remains a single entry by one of the grooms that stands out from the mundane diary of everyday life of the house, who reported seeing the ghostly visage of Lord Stowell shortly after his death, walking through the hallways wearing a drab coat on a bright moonlit night. Following this unusual story, however, the house finally fell silent for a number of years until its lease to the Ricketts family in 1765, when it took on a whole new life as the scene of a paranormal investigation almost a century before such stories were the fashionable literary fodder of newspapers and pamphlets across the country. Married in 1757, Mary Jervis and William Henry Ricketts had settled in Greenwich, England, before taking out a lease on and moving into Hinton Ampner Manor in 1765. William Henry Ricketts had been born in Jamaica in 1736, where the family had prominent ties after his grandfather, Captain William Henry Ricketts, had played a role in the sacking of the Spanish colony on the island, while serving under Oliver Cromwell in 1655. The English had intended to raid Hispaniola, but after the expedition failed, they fell back on the relatively undermanned island of Jamaica, capturing it from the Spanish and setting up their own colony. Captain William Henry Ricketts helped supply the Jamaican plantations with African slaves, profiting greatly from the ugly transatlantic trade, while settling in St Elizabeth with his wife, Mary Godwin, who gave birth to 11 of their children. Of their offspring, only one, George Ricketts, maintained the family's connection with the island, becoming a major general in the Jamaican militia, and as such, he inherited the Kanan estate, consisting of almost 4,000 acres of land and almost 300 slaves. George was what one might call prolific in love, working his way through three wives and fathering 27 children. His 23rd child, William Henry Ricketts, eventually inherited the Jamaican estate, making him a wealthy man and a relatively good catch for Mary Jervis, though Mary was no slouch herself. Mary's brother, John, was a Royal Navy Admiral whose distinguished service would see him rewarded with the title of Baron of Meaford and Earl of St Vincent before his death. When William Henry and Mary Ricketts moved into Hinton Manor in 1765, they brought with them their newborn son, William Henry, then just two months old, and the majority of their domestic staff from London, setting up in the sprawling manor in January of 1765, in the middle of what was recorded as a particularly severe winter, 
a trend which would continue every winter throughout the rest of the decade. Soon, after settling into the manor, Mary Ricketts began hearing strange noises at night, which she described as, as of people shutting, or rather slapping, doors with vehemence. Concerned about intruders, William Henry was sent off to look through the empty hallways in search of the culprit, though nothing was ever turned up. Suspicion quickly fell on the servants, but that too was eventually waved away when none were found out of place. The noises continued and caused such a degree of fear that all the locks throughout the house were eventually changed, with Mary shifting her suspicion onto the locals who she suspected may have had spare keys and had been letting themselves in in order to shelter in the house through the night. Changing every lock on the premises would not have been a small task, and when it was done, it made absolutely no difference, and the noises continued unabated and unsolved. Although the noises were strange, they were not particularly scary in themselves. Mary and William feared for their safety, but not necessarily the noises themselves. Things took a turn for the more unnerving about six months into their tenancy, however, when the nurse, Elizabeth Brailsford, saw a drab-suited man, similar in description to that the old groom had seen years prior, walking through the hallway outside and passing through the doorway into the opposite room. The winter had long since slipped into memory, and it had been a hot summer's evening when Elizabeth had been watching over the sleeping infant in the nursery, sitting opposite the open door which looked out into the hallway and the bedroom usually occupied by the lady of the house, when she saw the figure casually walk into the room. At first she had not given him much thought, but when she was later joined by the housemaid, Molly Newman, who had bought her supper, she asked her who the strange gentleman was that had come to visit. Molly said there should have been no one as far as she knew, and together the two servants went to the bedroom opposite to investigate, finding no trace of anyone. The nurse told Mary Ricketts the same story, and several months later, a similar story was relayed to her by George Turner, the gardener's son, He had been crossing the great hall on his way to bed when he had seen a man in a drab-coloured coat at the far end of the room. His first thought was that the man had been the butler, but when he stepped into the sleeping quarters and found all the male staff already tucked up in bed, he was forced to re-evaluate what he had seen, leading to a fairly uncomfortable conclusion. Still, Mary Ricketts did not yet have any particular concerns about the house, despite having heard of the original sighting by the groom and now two matching sightings by her own staff She instead chose to chalk the stories up to the effect of fear or superstition to which the lower classes of people are so prone. As the years passed, the noises continued, but things were generally more settled. Mary Ricketts gave birth to another son in 1767, who they named Edward, and life in the house was generally peaceful. Things changed slightly in the summer of that year, when at about 7pm a woman was seen by the kitchen, witnessed by the coachman, the waiting woman to Mary, along with two other domestic servants working for two of Mary's friends. The persons in the kitchen heard a woman come downstairs and along the passage leading towards them, whose clothes rustled as of the stiffest silk, and on their looking that way, the door standing open, a female figure rushed past and out of the house door, as they conceived. The view of her was imperfect, but they plainly distinguished a tall figure in dark-coloured clothes. Dame Brown, the cook, instantly coming in, This figure passed close by her and instantly disappeared. She described the person and drapery as before mentioned and they all united in astonishment who or what this appearance could be and their surprise was heightened when a man, coming directly into the yard and into the house the way she went out, on being asked who the woman was he met, declared he had seen no one. 
One year later, Mary and William Henry had their third child, a daughter named Mary, and so when William Henry prepared to head to Jamaica in 1769 to take care of family business, Mary chose to stay at Hinton Ampner to help raise the children, along with eight of her most trusted and familiar domestic staff. Mary's unease in the house began in earnest shortly after when, lying alone in bed night after night, she frequently woke to the swishing sound of a woman walking through her room in a silk dress. Each time Mary would step out of bed to search the room, pulling open the closets and double-checking the bolt across the door, before returning to bed satisfied that the room was empty. One of the more disturbing nights occurred in the summer of 1770, when laying asleep, she woke to the sounds of boots walking across the room. I had been in bed half an hour, thoroughly awake, and without the least terror or apprehension on my spirits. I plainly heard the footsteps of a man, with plodding step, walking towards the foot of my bed. I thought the danger too near to ring my bell for assistance, but sprang out of bed, and in an instant was in the nursery opposite, and with Hannah Streeter and a light, I returned to search for what I had heard, but all in vain. There was a light burning in the dressing room within, as usual, and there was no door or means of escape, save at the one that opened to the nursery. This alarm perplexed me more than any proceeding. Being within my own room, the footsteps as distinct as ever I heard, myself perfectly awake and collected. Despite all of this, Mary continued to sleep in her bedroom, and she tried to ignore the strange sounds, and did her best to attribute them to anything but the otherworldly. At least, until autumn of that year, when she began to hear a hollow murmuring that appeared as if it floated throughout the house, completely independent of the weather outside. But it was an experience that one of the domestic staff had that finally had Mary airing a suspicion that the things she had been experiencing in the house were perhaps of supernatural origin. Elizabeth Godin, a maid from the local village that Mary had employed several months earlier, relayed a story to Mary that on the morning of the 27th of February in 1771, she had heard dismal groans and fluttering flying around her bed throughout the night. Elizabeth had searched the room but found nothing of interest and returned to bed for a difficult and uneasy sleep. When Mary heard this tale from the maid the next morning, she decided to keep to herself the fact that Mrs Parfait, the elderly housekeeper who had recently retired and moved away from the manor, had passed away a few nights before and had been interred into the Hiddenton churchyard earlier that evening. Five weeks later, on the night of the 2nd of April, Mary was once again awoken by curious sounds making their way through her bedroom. It was between 1 and 2am when she woke and heard one or two people shuffling around, walking to and fro in the adjoining lobby. Slowly, she crept out of bed and placed her ear up to the door, listening intently for some clue as to who the people were outside. However, after 20 minutes, all she heard was the same shuffling of feet and a single loud noise, which she described as someone pushing strongly against the door. On this particular night, Elizabeth Godin had gone to bed with a fever, but Mary could not stand alone any longer, and so, reluctantly, she rang the servant's bell, calling Elizabeth up to her bedroom. Elizabeth, diligent as ever, came to the door of Mary's room immediately, knocking from the hallway outside. Mary asked through the door if she saw anyone, and when Elizabeth replied in the negative, she heaved a sigh of relief and stepped out into the hallway to meet the maid. In the dim lantern light, the two women searched around through the lobby, peering under the furniture, behind the chimney, and checked the locks on the doors, confirming that they were all firmly closed. 
After this examination, I stood in the middle of the room, pondering with much astonishment, when suddenly the door that opens into the little recess leading to the yellow apartment sounded as if played to and fro by a person standing behind it. This was more than I could bear unmoved. I ran into the nursery and rang the bell there that goes into the men's apartments. Robert Camis came to the door at the landing place, which door was every night secured so that no person could get to the floor unless through the windows. Upon opening the door to Robert, I told him the reason I had to suppose that someone was entrenched behind the door I before mentioned, and giving him a light and arming him with a billet of wood, myself and Elizabeth Godin waited the event. Upon opening the door, there was not any being whatever, and the yellow apartment was locked, the key hanging up, and a great bolt drawn across the outside door, as usual when not in use. There was then no further retreat or hiding place. After dismissing Robert and securing the door, I went to bed in my son's room, and about half an hour afterwards heard three distinct knocks as described before. They seemed below, but I could not then, or even after, ascertain the place. The next night, I lay in my own room. I now and then heard noises, and frequently the hollow murmur. Following this event, Mary finally admitted that she was seemingly suffering from something that she could not explain, and that the noises she was hearing were being created by something beyond the power of any mortal agent to perform. Though she still decided to keep these fears close to her chest, aware that such an opinion could lead her into trouble. Instead, she took to sleeping in the children's bedroom, at least until summer, when the noises seemed to be escalating, keeping her awake night after night, when she did return to her own room, but had Elizabeth sleep together with her in a small bed that she moved into the corner. As the sounds grew more frequent, they also seemed to take on a more recognisable cadence, and by the summer, when the noises would continue throughout the night, from dusk until dawn, she was fairly sure that she could determine a distinct female voice and two distinct men's voices, though what they were saying she could not be so sure, as despite the conversations sounding so close, the words remained muffled. In the mornings, she would ask Elizabeth if she had heard any noises overnight, and frequently she would describe the muffled conversations, exactly as Mary had heard. One night, after Mary had thought that she had heard the curtains pulled open, as if someone had walked past them and dragged them in their wake, Elizabeth confirmed hearing precisely the same noise. Perhaps fortunately for Mary, her older brother, John Jervis, the Royal Navy Admiral, had returned from the Mediterranean and taken up Mary's request for him to visit for a time. The extra company was welcome, however Mary decided to keep the troubles that she had been facing to herself, claiming that she was too ashamed to admit that she believed she had been kept awake at night for months on end by ghosts. Curious to know whether or not John had heard the noises himself though, Mary casually mentioned the noises made the night before by the servants, though seemingly he had slept undisturbed, and he replied that he had heard nothing. That afternoon, John returned to Portsmouth for a week, and almost immediately, Mary's peace was disturbed when a terrifying noise erupted from the lobby once more. Elizabeth Goading and myself both awoke. She had been sitting up in bed looking around her, expecting, as she always did, to see something terrible. I heard with infinite astonishment the most loud, deep, tremendous noise, which seemed to rush and fall with infinite velocity and force on the lobby floor adjoining to my room. I started up and called to Godin. Good God, did you hear that noise? She made no reply. On repeating the question, she answered with a faltering voice. She was so frightened, she scarce durst speak. Just at that instant, 
we heard a shrill and dreadful shriek, seeming to proceed from under the spot where the rushing noise fell, and repeated three or four times, growing fainter as it seemed to descend till it sank into earth. Hannah Streeter, who lay in the room with my children, heard the same noises, and was so appalled that she lay for two hours almost deprived of sense and motion. With a deep resignation, Mary decided that it was time to relate everything that she had experienced to her brother upon his return from Portsmouth. Unfortunately, John had been held up, and his return to the manor was delayed by a week, in which time Mary decided to move bedrooms, hoping that she might get better rest in another room. She desperately needed the rest too, as the long nights of disturbed sleep had been taking its toll, and with each passing day, she felt her health decline further. When John finally returned, later that August, Mary explained everything that she had heard over the previous years whilst living at Hinton Ampner. John took the news surprisingly well, and, along with a family friend, Captain James Luttrell, another Royal Navy officer and politician who happened to have been visiting, agreed to sit up overnight and investigate the cause of all the commotion. As night fell across the estate, John, along with his servant, John Bolton, searched every hallway, room and apartment of the house, from top to bottom, checking that the doors were locked, the bolts were secured, and that the attic rooms were empty. Finally, he returned to bed in a room above the servants' hall, with John Bolton and Captain James Luttrell taking first watch in the adjoining room. Almost as soon as Mary laid down to sleep, she heard the familiar noise of a rustling silk dress by her door. Sitting up, she asked Elizabeth if she heard the same, and as soon as the maid confirmed that she had, they both hopped out of bed and swung open the door to Captain Luttrell's room, alerting him of what they had heard. He said he heard the footsteps of a person walking across the lobby, and that he instantly threw the door open and called, Who goes there? That something flitted past him when my brother directly called out, Look against my door. He was awake and heard what Mr Luttrell had said, and also the continuance of the same noise till it reached his door. He arose and joined Mr Luttrell. Both astonished, they heard various other noises. Examined everywhere, found the staircase door far secured as I had left it. I lay so near and had never closed my eyes, no one could go to that door unheard. My brother and his man proceeded upstairs and found the servants in their own rooms, and all the doors closed as they had seen just before. They sat up together, my brother and Mr Luttrell, till break of day, when my brother returned to his own chamber. About that time, as I imagined, I heard the chintz room door open and slam to with the utmost violence, and immediately the, the hall chamber opened and shut in the same manner. I mentioned to Godin my surprise that my brother, who was ever attentive not to alarm or disturb the children, should hazard both by such vehement noise. An hour after, I heard the house door open and slam in the same way, so as to shake the house. No one person was then up, for as I had never slept, I heard the servants rise and go down about half an hour afterwards. When we were assembled at breakfast, I observed the noise my brother had made with the doors. Mr Luttrell replied, I assure you, Jervis made not the least noise. It was your door, and the next I heard opened and slapped in the way that you describe. My brother did not hear either. He afterwards acknowledged to me that when he had gone to bed and Mr Luttrell and I were sitting below, he heard dreadful groans and various noises that he was then and after unable to account for. His servant was at that time with mine below. The following morning, both Captain Luttrell and Mary's brother John declared the house inhospitable, and after they spent a little time discussing the situation, 
Mary eventually sent a missive to the landlord, requesting his presence at the manor at his earliest convenience. Unfortunately, he had been suffering from gout and sent his 15-year-old clerk instead. Unwilling to divulge anything to the clerk, possibly due to the magnitude of their conclusions and probably more due to the embarrassment of the assumptions, they sent the clerk away, hoping to speak with the landlord directly at a later date. For another week, John kept up his nightly vigils, guarding over Elizabeth as she tried to sleep in the room opposite. For the most part, it was business as usual, but one night stood out in particular, when Mary was woken by the sound of a gunshot, followed by the groans as of a person in agonies or expiring. These echoed around Mary's bedroom and the adjoining chamber. It was enough to convince Mary that it was time to leave the house. John, having to return to Portsmouth once more, sent his lieutenant of marines and friend of the family to watch over Elizabeth until the particulars could be arranged. Upon his return to Portsmouth, he wrote to Mary's husband, William Henry in Jamaica, explaining the situation and his experiences in the house. The circumstances that I am about to relate to you, dear sir, require more address than I find myself master of. It is easy to undertake, but difficult to execute a task of this delicate nature. To keep you longer in suspense would be painful. I therefore proceed to tell you, Hinton House has been disturbed by such strange, unaccountable noises from the end of April to this day, with little or no intermission, that it is very unfit your family should continue any longer in it. The children, happily, have not the least idea of what is doing, but my sister has suffered exceedingly through want of rest and by keeping this event in her own breast too long. Happy should I have been to have known it earlier, as I might have got rid of the alarm with the greatest facility and dedicated myself entirely to her service and support till your return. But engaged as I am with the Duke of Gloucester, there is no retreating without the worst consequences. You will do me the justice to believe that I have, during the short space this event has been made known to me, employed every means in my power to investigate it. Captain Luttrell and my man John sat up the night after it was imparted, and I should do great injustice to my sister if I did not acknowledge to have heard what I could not. After the most diligent search and serious reflection, any way account for, Mr Luttrell had then no doubt of the cause being beyond the reach of human understanding. My sister, having determined on the steps necessary to pursue, of which she will squint you, I think her situation ought not to accelerate your return at least till you are gratified with proving the utility of the laborious alterations you have made. The strength of judgment, fortitude and perseverance she has shown upon this very trying occasion surpass all example, and as she is harassed, not terrified by this continual agitation, I have no doubt of her health being established the moment that she is removed from the scene of action and impertinent inquiry. Or I would risk everything to accompany her to the time of your arrival in England, for which, and every other blessing heaven, can bestow you have the constant prayer of. And in something of a flurry, the house was left empty once more. The children were moved out first, almost as soon as John had returned to Portsmouth, with Mary following shortly after. Over the following years, the house was leased by several tenants, and though none seemed to settle for any length of time, there were never any more documented complaints that the hallways were haunted. Several years later, the house was inherited by Henry Bilson Legg, a former Chancellor of the Exchequer who, in 1793, saw fit to tear the old Tudor manor down and rebuild the house in the Georgian style of plain yellow brick. It was rebuilt once more in 1865, with the Georgian structure built upon in a mock Tudor style with added Victorian Gothic charm by the then owner John Thomas Dutton, a wealthy British slave owner who, in fantastic and utterly eccentric style, demanded his architect design a house for him with 
a large drawing room, a very high kitchen, about 30 bedrooms, all told, and no bathroom. Legend had it that Dutton had once caught a cold once, which he had attributed to using a bathroom, and he had hated them ever since. The outcome of Dutton's building works resulted in a house that would later be called a building of exceptional hideousness by its 20th century owners, who once more pulled the manor down and rebuilt it in the latter half of the 1930s, this time complete with bathrooms. Following the Ricketts' departure, several disturbances were noted at the manor house. The best documented is by the coachman, Robert Camis, who wrote to Mary several times to tell her how his sister and mother had both heard noises up at the house when they had daily visited in order to open the windows and air their rooms out. One night, his sister had heard a loud noise that rolled along like thunder. Another time, both his mother and sister were in the kitchen when they heard a dismal groaning very loud, but found no one else in the house to explain where it had come from. Several servants wrote corroborating reports to the noises heard throughout the disturbances, all of which backed up Mary's own narrative. In a memoir published in 1838 by Catherine Mary Howard, the author makes one of the earliest published mentions of the Hinton haunting, stating that she would have liked to have visited the house had it not been torn down. In her brief discussion on the topic, she provides two interesting pieces of information that are left out entirely from any latter publications. Firstly, Mary's brother John Jervis happened to be an intimate friend of her mother and father, which gave her the opportunity to question him on what she called the haunted house. Interestingly, she described him as trying to cut the subject short and then later assiduously avoid the topic, which she thought gave rise to a suspicion of his belief in the ghost. Secondly, she then goes on to recall a story that an old gardener, long attached to the house, gave a deathbed confession that, preferring to be alone at the house, he conspired with Mary's maid to make the noises in order to drive Mary away with the help of a subterraneous passage running under the manor. Whilst this story is interesting, the gardener, later named by Mary as Richard Turner, did not go on to marry the maid as she suggested, and there are several other glaring errors too that lay doubt across the rest of the story, which, finally, Catherine Mary admits, was written purely on hearsay. In fact, throughout Mary's account of her time living at Hinton she insisted it would have been impossible for anyone to have played tricks on her. Her servants were, in the main, long-term employees who she had brought with her from London, and when they were replaced by locals, she always ensured they were well-educated and from families with good local reputations. In a letter to her husband following her rapid desertion from the house, she reiterated to him that she was on a very good terms with the neighbours and locals, stating that she had received the greatest friendship and attention from everyone in the area. The local church pinned a notice upon their door, offering a reward for 50 guineas to anyone who could provide the vicar with any information as to who, for several months past, frequently made diverse kinds of noises in the mansion house occupied by Mrs Ricketts at Hinton Ampner. An amnesty and the same reward of 50 guineas was also offered to any accomplices willing to turn in their partners in crime to the officials. Though no one came forward and no information was ever received, despite the reward being raised to 90 guineas after William Henry Ricketts returned from Jamaica. One of the more curious stories attached to the Ricketts' stay in Hintonampner related to a skull supposedly found under the house in the years following the family's departure. In Mary's own report, she told of how, in 1769, shortly after William Henry had sailed to Jamaica, an old man living in a local poorhouse had visited the manor and told Mary of how his wife had told him 
that in her younger days, a friend of hers who had been a carpenter had at one time been called into the manor to pull up some floorboards in the dining room in order that the then owner, one of the Stukeley family, could conceal something underneath that the carpenter thought must have been treasure. Although this story was most likely the devices of a beggar hoping for a handout, a letter included with Mary's narrative, written by Osborne Markham Esquire, the son of the Archbishop of York and a British politician, stated that when the house was pulled down in 1793, a small skull was found under the foundations of the Tudor Manor. The skull was apparently identified as a monkey and was later also suggested to be a small baby, clearly attempting to tie part of Mary's narrative to the ancient rumours that Edward Stowell and his sister-in-law Honoria had done away with their scandalous newborn. This piece of the story was never followed up on and apparently the matter was never brought forward by any regular enquiry. A different publication altogether, published in 1870, two years before the publication of Mary's narrative, gives another branch of the same story, where the ageing carpenter who pulled up the floorboards originally was tracked down, and the vague treasure was instead described as valuable title deeds. In this version of the tale, the floorboard was once more pulled up, but nothing was found beneath it. Whatever the truth of Mary's narrative, written to her children about an alleged haunting, it's clear that the house did foster some kind of reputation before the Ricketts moved in. The authenticity of Mary's narrative itself has been questioned in the past, but it seems genuine enough, given that it is mentioned by several people who knew people related to the story decades before it was first published. The fact that Mary had every one of her servants sign her manuscript, attesting it as the truth, is another intriguing point as are several of the amended letters written to Mary or her husband by several prominent, wealthy and powerful people of the day, all talking openly about the topic. It at least seems that it was a genuine document, and not some 19th century hoax written by an entrepreneurial journalist. The most reasonable theory seems to be that the ghosts were nothing more than atmospheric noises, heard and misinterpreted by a new family recently moved from London to an old country manor that creaked and banged in the cold heat and wind. If it really was supernatural, the demolition of the Tudor Manor in 1793 seems to have brought an end to the haunting, as no reports have been made since the house's rebuild, and today it stands as nothing more than an old manor house, open to the public who visit to walk through the gardens and ogle the old artwork that adorns the walls. Its history is a haunted mansion long since forgotten. So that was the story of the Hintonampna haunting, uh, an old, interestingly, like super gothic haunting a hundred years before it was actually a thing, which I thought was really interesting. Anyway, we shall talk a little bit about it and some other things that I dug up in the research of it after these short advert breaks. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever find that just as you're trying to fall asleep, your brain suddenly won't stop talking? Do your thoughts start racing right before bed? or at other inopportune moments. I can absolutely agree with a resounding yes that that happens to me all the time. It turns out one great way to make those racing thoughts go away is to talk them through. Therapy gives you a place to do that, so you can get out of your negative thought cycles and find some mental and emotional peace. This happens to me all the time, and to be honest, it's the main reason I started Dark Histories, or one of the main reasons I started Dark Histories, Dark Histories was just a way to pull myself out of my own head. And in the same vein, 
talking to others and th- doing therapy uh, it, it's, it's essentially the same thing you're pulling yourself out of your own head you're, you're talking giving yourself a bit of room to voice the sort of issues that you're having and better help is is great for this because it's entirely online it's really convenient i mean that's it's literally what it's designed for you know it's flexible uh, and to suit made to suit your schedule uh, you just fill out a brief questionnaire, you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, why not give BetterHelp a shot? So visit betterhelp.com slash darkhistories today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash darkhistories. That's all one word, D-A-R-K-H-I-S-T-O-R-I-E-S. Cheers. Welcome back. So yeah, I thought this story was really interesting. What stuck out to me, which I've mentioned a few times now, is is the fact that this was in the 18th century, uh, sort of before the spiritualist boom, and when these sorts of stories were much less common and talked about in general. Like you had ghost stories for sure. For example, you had the Cock Lane haunting, which I've covered before. That was you know even before this. So it's not like ghost stories weren't a thing. But this very particular type of sort of gothic ghost, you know, an old manor with a, a sort of woman in white in a silk dress walking through, like that kind of gothic style haunting is very much a product of the 19th century. So I thought it was really interesting that, you know, in this case, it was it was much before that. Now, I thought John Jervis's letter is kind of interesting. I It, it brings up the question of, you know, does he really believe the ghost or does he think that his sister had maybe got herself a little bit sort of worked up. Because although he does mention it, you've got to remember that he's trying to convey this situation to her husband in Jamaica, and he's clearly trying to play it down to some degree, because he, he mentions in the letter, um, he says, you know, uh, not that it's not enough for him to worry himself enough to come back to England, like cut his stays short and come back to England. So he's just kind of trying to play it down, but at the same time, he's trying to sort of impress what's happened. And when he... Um, explains the noise that he, he heard he's very vague in his wording i i thought anyway so when i came across the memoir um that was written by Catherine mary howard who said that she thought that the, the she doubted the veracity of his belief that 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 made a lot of sense to me I, i'm not so sure he believed what was going on i think maybe he he sort of stood guard and did the ghost watch and the vigil just to sort of placate his sister in a way to kind of like talk her down maybe so i'm that i find i found that element of this quite interesting the the skull section of the story i found that to be much less believable um it didn't surprise me at all that this story is repeated in harry price's book um poltergeist over england i think it's called because Harry Price loved all that. And it's, and it's also no surprise that he doesn't source that information or anything. And, and I think that's probably because he knew that the source was questionable. Like, there is only one source and it's very questionable. So I think he basically knew that. But he left it in his book anyway. But, but, but of course, because it's in Harry Price's book, it's kind of become canon, you know, because Harry Price is Harry Price and it's really famous. So... It's kind of become canon because of that, but I, I don't believe it. it. It doesn't even really make sense to me. The original story uh, was that there was the, the, the rumours that a baby was killed because, you know, the the guy had had a baby with his sister-in-law, which was like a big scandal because he was a widow, and so they got rid of the baby. And that's okay, like, fine. I can buy that story, right? But 
it's the bit where it talks about Mary, where, where they sort of try and tie it into Mary's narrative because she mentions this um, guy came to her and told her about the floorboards being pulled up. Well, that was a common way of begging back in the day. Like, oh, like people would go to a manor house, but they wouldn't just beg for money. They would like tell a story that they that the the, the owners could perhaps benefit from, and and then they would expect money in exchange for that story. So it was like a trade, right? So that that was kind of old school begging. That was a very common way of begging in, in the old days. You didn't, I mean, I'm sure they did just have like poor people turn up and just ask for money, but it was also a common thing for say poor people to turn up at manor houses and, and sort of give a story in exchange for something, right? So that, that story doesn't surprise me in the least. And that seems to be what it was. It said that, you know, in Mary's narrative, it mentions that he was from the poor house, um, so I, I think it's obvious that that's what that was. But it also seems that this sort of story came in in the sort of latter parts of the 19th century when the concept of haunted objects and screaming skulls and cursed bones, which is definitely older than the Gothic period, but it became popular, uh, a popular sort of trope in in sort of uh gothic horror um around about that sort of time and so it, it makes no surprise to me that it, I, I feel like this was probably inserted into the story because that was all the sort of rage at the time so to me it doesn't really make sense and it makes much more sense that it's just inserted in and, and tr- sort of they, they've basically tried to tie this visitation by the poor man uh to the old rumors that these two people were like killed their baby basically um and you know i think okay yeah sure you got these tenuous links but i don't know man it seems very unlikely to me anyway a really good story i thought all the same i you know do we think it was really haunted or not i think the most obvious explanation in this case is that it's just atmospheric like she was a lady who had lived in london and they'd moved to the rural uh like an old rural tudor mansion this is going to have been creaking and cracking and grinding a lot. Uh, the, it's, it was known that the, the temperature was um, very cold in the winter. Um, like they were very severe winters they were having at that time. Um, I looked up the weather forecasts because that's how I do the arc histories. Um, I looked up the recorded weather for the times and it's true there was very cold winters. So, you know, you're going to have those kind of expansion and contraction of like the wood and all sorts of things. So I think that's probably the most likely outcome but it's really interesting I, I think what i what i find interesting about it if we're going to talk about it, if we believe it or not is that a lot of the stuff in this story are it is sort of like these like gothic horror tropes but this is before gothic horror so you know this time ghosts were sort of a lot more basic often they were they were sort of like manifestations of noises and things like banging and knockings they weren't necessarily the, the women in the silk dresses you know like this stuff came later so that's kind of interesting because it shows like a at least either a genuine sighting or or a huge imagination um whichever one you want to pick really uh otherwise though say a really fascinating story it's been pointed out to be um, a, a heavy influence on um the turn and screw and i can totally see that like a hundred percent and i think it you know i can totally see henry james getting a, a big chunk of the story from this or the, even the whole feel you know for the story from this so yeah that, that it's interesting for that reason as well of course but anyway 
I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any thoughts or theories about it, let me know. You can get in touch. Uh, contact at darkhistories.com is the email address. Uh, you can also uh, DM me on social media and things like that. All the links for the email and all the social media and the Discord and all that is in the show notes. It's also on the website, darkhistories.com, where you'll find all sorts of ways you can support the show, uh, contact me, all sorts. Uh, there's merchandise, there's books, um, there's all sorts of stuff. It's all on the website. It's basically a hub for everything. As the show notes do a pretty good job of that anyway, but the website's there if you need it as well. So yeah, darkissues.com. Anyway, enough of all that. Thank you very much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. So until then, sleep tight. Mm-hmm.